0: Welcome to Below the Line. We're talking about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. We are continuing our series about the Oscar nominees and the technical categories. Today, we're going to discuss the nominees for film editing and visual effects. As a warning, these conversations tend to wander, and there could be spoilers. Let me introduce my guests. First up, Josh Gilson, you worked on The Practice from 1996 to 2004 first as an assistant editor, and then a full editor for the last three seasons. You've since left the business, as I myself have done, and you've become a lawyer, which I most definitely have not done. Additionally, we went to college together, and it's nice to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: Next up, Chris Angel. You're a working writer and director, and in parallel, you've maintained a job as a Hollywood editor. We also went to college together back in the day, and we're both Dodgers fans, so we got that going on. Chris, glad to have you here.
2: Thank you, and I professionally have to go by Christopher because of a certain magician who's stolen my birth name. <laughs> uh, we will. So
0: we can call you Christopher on the podcast if you like. We can make Mine as make well, since we're
2: talking about film editing.
0: You got it, Christopher. That's going to be hard. I'm going to st- stumble over that, but uh, we'll do our best. Finally, Sean O'Banion, making his third appearance on the show, you work at Prague-based Post and Visual Effects House UPP, and you are the project coordinator for Post on Jojo Rabbit. You're also a Gotham Award-winning independent film producer with a number of projects in development. Thanks for joining us again.
3: Thanks for having me back, Skid.
0: Glad all of you are here. Uh, Sean, though, just like with our DGA stuff, it does look like you're on the outside. If we start telling college stories, feel free to, to interrupt us. But in, the meantime, <laughs> but in the meantime, before we jump right into the nominees, let's talk in general terms about the editing category. As editors, what do you look for when you're watching a film?
2: So for me, uh, you know, specifically looking to for awards is a little different than maybe just trying to enjoy a film as a viewer. But two things sort of stand out when I'm watching a film, sort of putting my editing hat on, and particularly for these five nominees for this year's Oscar. One is sort of the bigger structural aspect of the film. I'm looking for pacing and for storytelling and how the characters are introduced and how the characters are developed. And obviously, we we'll can talk about this later a little bit, but some of that seems like it should be coming from the director and the writer, so you have to try to separate what the editor is able to do to affect that. And then secondly, uh, which is it's a little clearer, is looking sort of scene to scene at sort of the micro choices, how a scene is edited, how a scene's constructed, and sort of inside um, a single scene, the tricks of editing that happen.
1: So for me, this is Josh here. For number number one, if I'm watching a movie and I say, wow, that was great editing, odds are the movie is shit. <laughs> so uh, most of the time while I'm watching a movie, and certainly in the case with every single one of these films nominated, I saw them well before the nominations came out. And so I was not looking at them from a, gosh, is this editing good perspective? I was looking at it because I'd heard great things about the film and they're all terrific in their way. And so I'm now tasked, I I did not go back and see them all again uh, on purpose, but also because of time constraints. But I'm kind of trying to think about in similar to what Chris said, how did the editing function, given that they're nominated, how did the editing function in each of these, films and in trying to select say one that were I in the position to vote would vote for I would vote for it's very ephemeral because well first of all the category is it best is it greatest achievement is it just an editing award and what actually are we awarding this for it, it's um we could go on about that but uh to talk about best editing is peculiar because uh, so much of editing, by definition, is what's not in the film. I mean, you know, literally what's on the cutting room floor. And so it's unknowable, you know, for from an audience perspective. So the question as to what I look for in, in a movie as an editor, I kind of think back and say, well, gosh, in which of these films was the editing a particularly effective contributor to the telling of the story.
0: I think it's been an ongoing theme with these Oscar episodes, where even as we look at each technical category, figuring out how the efforts of one area align with, and then further the goals of the film overall. Um, But to your point, Josh, I think this could be a difficult one to figure out somewhat on editing because of that split about what's actually taken out. When films come out with extended cuts, do you feel that the editor has a larger role on that or is that often the director overruling an editor when those things happen?
1: My opinion is I never watch extended cuts. I never watch director's cuts unless they're like 20 years later and represent, you know, the uh, resolution of some real creative divisions over the original project. But basically, again, both from a time perspective, I, you know, a movie gets one chance, and this idea that I should go back because some guy feels like, generally, statistically speaking, feels like, oh, but there should have been this. It's just, it doesn't float for me.
3: I would, I would say that there are times where, for example, there's a Ridley Scott film called The Kingdom of Heaven, um, and it was sort of butchered up by Fox when they released it. Um, and then subsequently they released a director's cut. It's almost four hours long, but it is a much better film than what was released theatrically. And you could argue maybe about the various versions of Blade Runner as well. I would say most of the time, it's, it doesn't make the film better when they when they put stuff back in, for me at least. But in, in a few cases, you sort of say like, there must have been some turmoil behind the scenes that affected the version of this movie that we all got to see and and when they do release a different cut you're kind of like okay now now it makes sense this this whole b story that kind of disappeared and went nowhere now it plays so i think that occasionally that happens
2: yeah it's an interesting question skid because somebody's worn three different hats in the feature film industry a writer a director and an editor I really feel strongly that editors are kind of like the unknown secret, sort of like the unknown heroes of filmmaking. And I feel like editors don't get as much credit; they're not as well known. I feel like, in a good way, sometimes studio executives and you know producers leave them alone for quite a while, which is I, you know, as an editor, I always kind of enjoy just having time with the material alone. But it's it's a different sort of pressure that's put on them, um, and as a result, they kind of fly under the radar. But I really feel that so much of what makes a, a great movie great happens in the editing room. Like I, I, you know, I think to Josh's point, you could take two different editors with the exact same dailies, and you could have two radically different movies. Or, as you point out, Sean, like you know, uh, two different directors or two different sort of directors' points of views can make two very different movies out of the same material. And so I want to propose, I've always wanted to propose this. I'm hoping somebody will hire me to do this at some point, but I want to propose a new position in filmmaking. I want to be a Redditor, which is a writer-editor, because I feel like so many of the writing questions that are not resolved or issues with the screenplay, the editor is the one trying to still solve those exact same questions. And so the editor has a lot to do with writing.
1: That is, you want to rejigger your title or you want to functionally change what you do as an editor?
2: I want to functionally, I want to be both the screenwriter and the editor on a feature. I want to see what that experience would be like, not the director, because I feel like when I direct, it's very hard to edit properly because I'm so emotionally involved with the scenes and the way I was trying to direct them that it's very difficult to step back and edit. But I think you could be a writer and then take that material and still have the objectivity needed to be a really good editor as long as you have the technical skills to do it. So I want to create this new position where you do both of those things. I think it does,
3: it, it does exist in reality, I think, right? They call them producer, writer, editor, so they combine it into predator. Um,
2: <laughs> That's in reality TV, I found that, but yeah, I've never seen yeah. that in a feature very much. Or very, like, There's probably a couple examples, but very few. So there's I'm certainly not- director
1: editors. Um but I, I agree, I do not know of any writer, non-director, editors.
0: Well, and I think you'd have a hard time finding a director that wanted to fit into the middle of that, as far yeah. as taking your material. Like, they're going to churn it out and then have to give up all creative control for when it gets to the edit side. I'd give it back to the writer at that point. I think, uh, well, you, you know, find the partner who's going to do that with you, Chris. We'll get a bunch of those going, and then maybe we'll get a new category on it. But speaking of the categories, let's go ahead and turn our attention to this year's nominees, we're going to start with film editing. Let's talk about him in turn. First up, Ford v. Ferrari. The nominees are Michael McCuster and Andrew Buckland.
1: So I'll jump in and say that this actually was one movie con- that, that I both liked, and contrary to my initial uh, position, um, I said, "Oh, this is going to get an editing nomination." And the reason was, and I, sorry, this is going to sound very reductive, but all those many sequences of gear shifts was like, wow, they've got lots of different ways of showing gears being shifted. And, you know, it kind of, there is a, a degree of creativity that goes into little repetitive details like that to keep them from being, you know, just like placeholders what I will say about Ford v Ferrari versus the other ones in these categories is I personally have a bias as brilliantly edited as fast paced action uh, sequenced films, not that the entire film's that way, uh, go. There is, I think, a misconception about editing being better when pace is quicker or when there are more cuts quantity does not equate to quality and again not saying that ford v ferrari is not a very well edited film it is but my appreciation for this film's editing had much more to do with the fact that it presented in in addition to the human scenes a great many scenes where there was a great deal of high octane so to speak action going on and to me that's just not as subtle a challenge as uh, those presented by some of the other films so while i really enjoyed the film editing was terrific it wouldn't have gotten my vote for whatever that's worth
2: i would i would sort of tend to agree with you josh like i i think i found it a pleasant surprise. And again, looking back at sort of the two things I look look for in a movie, when I'm looking at editing specifically, and and unlike you, Josh, I actually did watch all these movies after I knew that we were gonna do this podcast. So I was kind of really looking at them with a critical eye saying like, what would I vote for if I was in the Academy? Um, but I agree. I mean, I think the scene to, scene work, like the within scene work of the car racing and the tension that was created through editing was amazing. I mean, technically this movie was flawlessly done and beautifully edited. Um, and I agree with that bigger point, too, about I think it's, it's very easy to be reductive and say, OK, what's the number of edits? Like there's a there's a ton of edits in this movie, so it must be really well edited. It's an interesting question this year because of the one movie that was not nominated for editing. But there was actually like a campaign, I think, probably by its publicists to get it nominated. I found it kind of ludicrous, which was 1917, mm. which is famously meant to look like it's all one continuous shot. And there are some hidden edit moments in it and i'd seen an article in one of the trades where they were pushing it to be nominated in the editing category and i was just like that's ridiculous you know it only has five edits and while those were done well it's missing the second aspect of film editing that i really love and i think it's super important which is within a scene how are you changing the performances and the pacing and creating tension within a scene i mean just the editor was not able to do that So to me, it was just, you know, it had 50% of it, you know, in terms of structure, it was obviously well done and well, very cleverly edited. But the the 50% of scene work was not there. In Ford v. Ferrari really was there. I, I would say like the one thing I would criticize about it is on the bigger structural level, I felt I don't want to give anything away here too much, but I felt like there were three endings to the movie. And, you know, I was really on sort of the edge of my seat because of the editing for a lot of it. But by the end, um, I just felt there's like one denouement too many um, happening. And so, again, I I kind of feel like that's one place that maybe it it didn't quite live up to my my hopes for the editing category.
0: So Ford v. Ferrari is interesting because we did do a podcast about the movie uh, in late December, and they shared the story about putting those scenes together with footage from multiple locations and being very specific about what was going to be shot and how it came together. And you also talked, Chris, about the story about uh, folks pushing 1917. Do you think stories like that about what happens behind the scenes do help to push certain films into contention or to keep films out based on what people hear or the degree that these stories make the popular press?
1: I have very strong feelings about this. I hope I can say it very simply. So I actually, you know, looked at the the Oscar scorecard, that is the films that got, say, in in Variety's case, two or more nominations, and there were 17 of them. I, I believe that all of them have been nominated for Best Editing. The idea that among the hundreds of films, and this is true across categories, hundreds of films that were released this year, that any you know finite group of people can sit down and say that 17 of them had the best instance of every single craft that goes into making a film and limit it to those 17 is ludicrous there is so much about perception and oscar campaigns which is pr and best editing since that's what we're talking about the idea that you know the other what you know Two hundred and eighty-three movies that came out last year somehow had worse editing than these
0: five. It's absurd. Well, probably some of them did. Oh, I mean, certainly. <laughs> but in terms, <laughs> right. Of, right? We do want. Uh, there is a. Uh, as I don't right, think right. anyone on this but call that, would argue that we do. Uh, there is a craft that uh, people are demonstrating here. So
1: definitely, yeah. definitely. So, so that was that was overstated. But my point <laughs> is, the people. Let's the editors and i take it for granted this this is true for other crafts who are working on these movies let's take the top quarter of them still you've got a great many they're talented people who are working thoughtfully hard making good decisions about the material that they're handed i just think it's you know absurd that somehow meaning we we say that we've meaningfully reduced that group of people to five who are worthy of of notes
0: well we will take an opportunity um at the end of the category discussion to see if there was anything specific that didn't make the list that you guys want to give a shout out to but unfortunately joss given the time constraints we are going to turn our attention back to the five that we have in front of us let's move on to the next one the irishman thelma schoonmaker
3: i mean this is a it's a it's a tough one i mean a lot of people i think are going to be wondering how it got into this category the irishman is Pushing, you know, nearly what four hours or something. I mean, it's like what what wasn't in the movie at a certain point. You know, <laughs> she's obviously a legend. Her work with Scorsese is legendary. But I sort of, in watching the film, I mean, I was like, I get what what we're trying to say now, and I kind of wish we would get there faster.
1: Yeah, I agree with with all of that. Uh, she is a legend. I have no doubt. That in winnowing this category down, that figured very highly. That said, I, I, and putting aside for the moment, um, you know what Chris has talked about in terms of the intra-scene values. This movie, even though it was quite long, did hold my attention. And as an editor, one of whose responsibilities is to evaluate parts to the whole and, and, and govern pacing and having an an hour and a half movie that holds you versus a three and a half hour movie that holds you is a much greater editing challenge. And so I, I think despite the fact that she's got marquee value, though it wouldn't get my vote, I thought her achievement in making this film, you know, hold up for that long, is not to be minimized.
2: And I, I agree with that, Josh. I, mean, I also, uh, we should talk about how movies are seen these days. I mean, obviously, The Irishman was produced by Netflix and not, frankly, not in theaters for that long. So I saw it on Netflix when it was streaming. And as a result, I watched it like it was a mini series. I watched it in hour long chunks and kind of uh, somebody had told me sort of where to, where to take some breaks that would help the tension, but when watched like that, I have to say like this is one movie where I could separate, I thought I could separate the editing skill from some of the other issues going on, which is an interesting experience. And one I'd love to talk about is the role of women in the film, which I think it's been, I think fairly criticized for. Anna Paquin's character, who plays Sir Frank's daughter, and then there's a younger actress who plays her earlier, has it's a sort of very important role story-wise, but has incredibly few lines. And I found it really interesting because I actually got a lot out of the Anna Paquin relationship to the other characters, even without her having a lot of dialogue, a lot of screen time. And I actually sort of looking back at that. I really feel like the editing helped create a relationship in a way that um, could have easily been lost. So that was something that really did. That's all editing. Exactly. It's all editing. So kind of amazing that she was able to create a relationship and a character with very little to work with. I was was actually impressed by that. And then if I was going to give an award for the best single edit of anything I saw this year, this movie would also win that award. There's an edit that really stuck out for me. It's Hoffa's wife is going to get in a car and she puts her key in the ignition and she doesn't turn it right away. And there's a cut to a wide exterior shot and the car explodes. And then it cuts back to her. And she's sort of shaking, and she finally actually turns the key. And again, sort of from an editing point of view, it was amazing. I mean, it must have been sort of storyboarded in some level because they had to shoot the car exploding. And I don't know the story behind it because I try to avoid those when I'm just watching these on my own here. But in terms of like giving meaning to the film through editing, that to me really stuck out because now anytime somebody tried to turn on a car, and Frank does it very importantly late in the movie, he flies... Uh, to, to go meet Hoffa and he's given a car and he goes and sits in and turns it on. And the actor, you know, De Niro doesn't do much with turning the car on, but because of the editing, I was so tense thinking like, oh my God, could that car be, you know, have a bomb in it? So it just, it created a level of tension through editing that I thought was kind of amazing.
3: It's interesting that you, that you picked that that scene though, because for me, I mean, that that's the opening scene of Casino, right, is, is uh, Ace gets in his car, turns the key, car blows up and then the credits start and he's falling through the flames like a bond sequence so i mean for me it was like okay i've seen scorsese doing this this trick to us right of showing us something and then showing us another version of it either far into the movie or right after um so it ne- that never really got me in a sense but i mean i i definitely agree with you guys that I mean, I didn't break the movie up. I watched it on Netflix as well. And I watched the whole thing in one run. And I never was like, I need to turn this off and take a break. I mean, for me, I was like, first of all, I'm watching a Scorsese movie just in my house, you know, paying my monthly fee. So that's awesome. <laughs> but but secondly, like, you know, yes, I agree that it it never bored me. I just sort of, I, I understood what they were trying to say, I guess.
0: I feel like there's a, theme with the Irishman this year, and that the support for Scorsese and his team as a whole is very broad, but the actual support for this is the best in any given category is proving to be pretty shallow. And I think the early award ceremonies sort of hinted in that direction, and I suspect that with a lot of the competition going on in the Oscars themselves, that a lot of other films will will get a little more more push, and I think the Irishman might come up short. i but we'll see. We'll see how things shake out. Let's move on to the next film on the list. Jojo Rabbit nominated for film editing is Tom Eagles.
1: So this was either the first or second film that I saw of the five, uh, which is to say it was some time ago. And um, I uh, have to say in thinking back on the movie, while I remember the experience itself relatively well. It's hard for me at this <laughs> distance, given my age, to get a really strong beat on on the editing itself. I'd be interested to hear what everyone else has to say.
2: I watched it recently, Josh, and it just, I, I was looking at it for editing because, again, I, I knew we were doing this. And I think one of the important aspects of the movie is sort of uh, fantasy. You know, when you're inside JoJo's head, and he obviously is having a relationship with his um, imaginary Adolf Hitler friend, you know, it's like how editorially, how do you treat those sequences? And, and, and in the end, like it worked and I thought they were, they were fine, come kind of from an emotional level, but I was, I didn't find anything um, different about how they were handled that I was looking for. They were, they were cut in a pretty, in the same way that the rest of the film was cut in terms of style and You know, again, some of this is outside the editor's control, but they were shot separately, sort of in these separate spaces. So it wasn't like uh, editing was being used to bring Adolf Hitler more into the world in which JoJo was living. It really seemed like it was a private experience. He would go to his room generally and have these, you know, relationships where he'd be sitting at a table alone. So so I was looking at those sequences, like they were just, they were cut pretty straightforward. So I, I didn't get blown away by the editing overall. I thought, you know, it, it worked, it supported the story, but it wasn't standing out to me as like the best of the year.
1: It bears mentioning, I think that, um, this uh, Jojo Rabbit and Parasite just a couple of days ago won the ACE Eddie awards. And for those who don't know, that's given by the American cinema editors, which is the honorary, uh, society that, you know, gives editing awards every year. So, you know, also, given that, I was, Chris, going back and thinking, gosh, you know, did I miss something? Am I forgetting something? And anyway, so.
3: Yeah, I guess I would say, I mean, I, I'm, I worked on it, so there's that. But uh, knowing the sort of, uh, you know, having seen all the dailies that were coming in and, and seeing this sort of really, really heightened level of comedy and, and sort of kind of heavy drama. That, mm. that, that could have equaled either version of this movie um, and how Tom was able to sculpt that into, into what we eventually saw, really I think is why they probably got the Ace nomination, why he's gotten the Oscar nomination, because it's, it's, it's a farce, it's, a, you know, it's, it's like an old Mel Brooks kind of a thing and the level to which you can hit those certain emotional points or humor points is, is very tricky.
1: And that's a good point. Yeah, that that there are, you know, more than most films, uh, different tones to different scenes and and that that call for different approaches from an editing perspective.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I'm also uh, to your point. um, Generally, if you look at the the ACE uh, awards, I think it's six out of the last 10 years, the dramatic film winner took home the Oscar. Hmm. Um, so that can sometimes be an indicator. And in this case, that would be Parasite because, uh, Jojo is under the, is under the comedy category.
0: Well, before we get to Parasite, let's do these in alphabetical order. Next up is Joker and Jeff Groth was the film editor.
2: I was, I was pleasantly surprised by Joker. I mean, I, I didn't know that much about it going in, except that it was quote unquote controversial. And. From an editing point of view, I was I was actually pretty impressed by it overall. I felt like the editing, um, you know, there were some really interesting choices made in terms of pacing, and then in terms of helping um, create the psychological profile of the main character. Again, in terms of you know choice of shot angles, of when to cut, of you know how music was sort of brought in, where there was sort of quiet moments to allow music to be brought in, sort of modulation of things loud and and quiet, dark and light. I mean, there was just a lot different elements being used to sort of tell this internal story. So I found, and I found the pacing also, uh, quite effective again, like I, I didn't lose interest. I was, I was sort of curious to see what was happening next. But again, there were, there was a modulation that it, it had these sort of more action sequences where there was a threat and then things quietened down and things were more internal, but it was all building towards something. Um, so I found it structurally working and then, Again, just from a craft point of view, just beautifully done in, in terms of supporting the actress' performance and the cinematography and all the other elements that were there. So I, I was quite, quite pleasantly surprised and, and thought it was very effectively done.
1: I, I would agree. I, this is the other film that I saw, I think, over the summer. So it's been a while. Um, and similarly, it was a little hard for me to go back and isolate... Uh, The editing in in my memory. But uh, first of all, as a film, I enjoyed it much more and admired it much more than I thought I was going to, given the reviews. But I, you know, agree with Chris. It's especially when you have a film that is nominally a superhero origin film that granted from the start, aspires to be something a little bit more contemplative than you would expect. There is a challenge in um, executing both the vision of the writer and director and yet not kind of losing one's audience to, um, I don't know, uh, slowness. I mean, and, and it didn't, I mean, it really held me. It, it felt like a, a much more thoughtful uh, film than it had to be given then, given what it was about. And I think that's, that's a, a, a mark of, of achievement, certainly in part for the editor.
3: Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed uh, Joker. I thought it was done very well. It's not, you know, it's certainly, from from all appearances, out of Todd Phillips' wheelhouse. I also, because I'm just a total nerd and read all about this stuff, I, I found it really interesting, I don't know if you guys were aware, the composer who is probably the leading candidate for best score this year, uh, Hilda goodnitz daughter, she composed all the music before they shot. And they played that music on the set. And so a lot of, uh, I'd be curious to know how doing that affected the timing of things or for example, the bathroom dance sequence, that was not scripted. That was something that he just kind of went in there and started doing while they were playing her score and they shot it. And it's a huge chunk of that movie of, of that character. So, I mean, I think in terms of this, in terms of an Oscar, I find it very fascinating in how that editor, editor would have worked with what Joaquin was giving him you know cuz i think he was just kind of living his own <laughs> living his own thing during the making of it but i definitely you know i think maybe in terms of like flashiness that we were talking about joker of these uh five nominees is probably the flashiest one that that's in the category
2: it's a really tricky job to take you know Joaquin's um performance and make that really shine i mean you could you could frankly could ruin that performance by some not great editing choices but the editor knew when to let it play out when to cut you know like you said he really gave it a good rhythm and it makes sense to me that the music would have been playing on set sometimes because it really did feel like the elements were all coming together in terms of what an editor can control in terms of pacing and and performance aspects so
1: as an aside there's a really fun interview by Terry Gross on Fresh Air of Todd Phillips, in which he discusses a lot of the circumstances that the, under which the film was made. And if anybody's interested, it's there.
0: I think the Joker is going to be interesting. There's obviously, as we go through these technical categories, there's a lot of opportunities for it to come up. And again and again, we're talking about real expertise in these technical areas to further the vision of Todd Phillips on this movie. And I think what's controversial for me in the movie is that I'm not sure that that vision deserves all of the expertise that is put behind it. Like where Todd Phillips thinks he's going with this movie and where it ends up. And I think that's what splits people on somewhat where all of this very, very skillful uh, uh, support for this vision, it ends up leaving me a little colder even if just it was the story itself. but. Like I said, Joker comes up lots and lots. So I'll be able to revisit that theme in future podcasts. For today, let's take our last film editing nominee, Parasite. Yang Jinmo is the editor.
1: So for me, this is the film. First of all, it, it is endlessly surprising just in term, on a story level. But I can also see, you know, on an, on an editing level, to be able to get into all of these characters heads to show their relationships and uh, you have people double crossing each other and that's all well and good reading it on the page, but to be able to translate those kind of internal relationships, power and otherwise into very, uh, an, a very immediate dramatic experience um, it, it takes real sort of judicious choice of, of cutaways of performances. It, it also takes place in three very different worlds. You've got the the neighborhood that um, that the poorer family lives in. You've of course got this mouthwateringly gorgeous house where the bulk of the action takes place. And then you've got the basement and uniting all these and giving each their, their character. And there are these sequences where, you know, like when they're hiding under the table and you're looking outside and, and you're dealing with multiple levels of of consciousness of different characters on top of which you have sequences of violence. It's just so varied in terms of what it requires of the editor so kind of end-to-end brilliantly successful for me. This is the kind of movie that uh, for me, I think, often gets, at least in terms of the maybe public perception of what editing is, gets overlooked, but is, is such a gem.
2: I think I'm going to take a contrary view on this. I think I'm probably going to be in the minority in general, but... Well, I I really did enjoy the movie and I like uh, cross-genre movies, which this one I think falls into where there was sort of a satire aspect to it and then uh, a more violent, horrific sort of twist that happens and a bit of an action movie almost at the end. Um, So I enjoyed the movie a lot and I like what the movie's saying. I felt, and and again, I was watching this really specifically trying to look at the editing. So it was an interesting experience rather than just watching the movie uh, as if I was going to the theater. But... I felt like I could see the gears working too much, that uh, some of the transitions that you're talking about, Josh, actually just, frankly, stood out to me too much. And I was getting sort of bumped out of the movie, looking, sort of watching the editing happen. And it's interesting, again, it's like sometimes, again, what what is the raw material you're given to work with and then what what do you do with it? Um, A lot of it had sort of longer single takes. So when he chose to make the edits, obviously very important. But as an overall pacing aspect, I just, I felt like things, everything felt just a little bit too languid for me, just a little too slow. I thought you could get to the destination a little quicker. And I think most importantly, I feel like that transition between the satirical relationship between the two families and then the very kind of gory, violent ending, just, it, it clanged for me. Like I, I know it was, I didn't feel like it was set up properly and I felt like the, the, the transition between them just didn't happen as smoothly as I would have liked.
0: This is one where I'm surprised that it didn't get nominated in cinematography for some of those takes you're talking about, Chris, and some of the choices about, um, you know, overhead shots and bringing that all together. but uh, But an interesting point that it is here in the editing, but not recognized on that side of the equation.
2: Yeah, I actually liked its cinematography more than the editing. I think some of what Josh is pointing at, I would throw to the cinematographer, the contrast between the kind of underworld of the sub-basement apartment the family lives in at the beginning versus this beautiful um, mansion that's been made by an architect. I mean, it's just such a beautiful contrast and shot beautifully. So the, the sort of choice of angles and the way in which the spaces are treated I, I think I was giving that to the cinematographer and sort of unfortunately taking some of that away from the editor or not crediting the editor for how that came across in the story.
1: That, that's a, a great point. And um, I, I did, I wanted to um, mention something. This is not to gainsay anything that Chris said, but he mentioned these, these long takes. And um, one of the things, one of the most powerful decisions that you can make as an editor is not to cut. Sometimes directors make that choice easy for you because, for example, you know, the tracking shot at the beginning of uh, The Irishman, obviously there are cuts to, but but for the most part, you can tell that that is a shot that is meant to exist whole cloth, bringing in perhaps uh, a a film that that was not mentioned. Uh, As I was watching Marriage Story, again, not a film you would typically look at for flashy editing, there were a number of points when I said and Mary story, let's be clear, is not nominated and I was going to bring it up later um, I said, wow you know, I'm looking at backs and they're very expressive backs but ordinarily we'd have cutaways here and these are very powerful editing decisions and so I'm glad that Chris mentioned those long takes in in Parasite and I have no opinion on whether Parasite is an example or not of these specific decisions not to cut, but I just thought it was it was worth saying something that that can be a very powerful
3: editing choice. I'm probably somewhere firmly in the middle of the two of you. Um, I, the film was not one of my favorites, but I think part of that was that I sort of came to it after a lot of the hype and I was expecting this you know amazing like thing, and I was like, yeah, it's very well done. I've seen Pong hos other films. I kind of get it. I, I guess maybe I'm probably closer to Joshua in terms of the editing because I felt like there was there was an invisible quality to it, which I appreciated. And maybe that was because I'm thinking like Chris and thinking, well, that's because that's a shot that does that, and so they didn't have to do much with it. But I, I feel like the the editor must have had a hand in the way that those sequences were building, and and. and you know, it couldn't have been just down to what they shot on the day and the way that it was organized.
1: And by the way, this uh, sort of speculation about what was available and wasn't available to the editor is exactly the thing that makes editing, even for editors, very difficult to evaluate, because um, I I don't want to get, Get into like measuring, you know, which categories are more ephemeral. But my sense, for example, and I I don't mean to pick on on costumers, but for the most part, I know nothing about costuming. But if I were to evaluate, say, best costumes, I would look at what's on screen and feel like I had a pretty good good idea of what I was supposed to be evaluating. As an editor, I know just from the get-go that looking at what I see on screen is precisely a small fraction of what I have to evaluate. And that is, I think I mentioned earlier, it's essentially unknowable the full task that an editor has before him or her as, you know, they sit down to, to work on a film.
2: One of the best pieces of advice I ever got skid and you'll appreciate this because it came from my first AD on one of my films, but you know, he said like, You know, if you ever, as a director, if you ever want a long single take to make it in the film, do not shoot coverage. If you're (laughs) you're totally, if you totally think that that's important to tell your story, do not shoot the coverage. Because at some point, a producer will try to force you (laughs) to use that coverage in that scene. It's like nine times out of 10, it's like you've seen it happen. So it's advice I've always kept in my back pocket. If I felt really like this was crucial to storytelling, just don't shoot the coverage. Now, I like to have coverage because I'm an editor, but. There are certain moments when you don't do it just because of style, you know, you want that to last in the film.
0: Josh, going back to what you said about costuming, do please come back and listen to the episode where the wardrobe folks talk about why they think there's best picture because maybe there'll be some insight there. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. In the later episode, we'll try to bring you up to speed on that. But also let's, um, you put a shout out to Marriage Story earlier. Anyone else want to put a shout out to something they really liked this year that didn't make the list?
1: Let me, I'm sorry, let me just jump in. I'll give one more title and then uh, yield the floor. So obviously Marriage Story, uh, beautiful characterizations, beautiful performances, uh, lots of non-obvious choices. And this this movie just blew me away. Uh, And I was watching it on my phone. The other one uh, was Uncut Gems, which basically... Start to finish, I was in an exalted state of physical tension watching um, I just thought it was an extraordinary achievement of 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 mood and and pacing and that would have been my other one
3: I would agree with uncut gems actually that that i 'm familiar with the Safty brothers and that i can 't name the editor, but that movie was like this propulsive sort of nightmarish like bombardment that that never stopped. And I thought it was pretty impressive.
2: And then the other one I thought actually was going to get nominated. And I, I don't, I can't tell if I'm sad or happy that it didn't, but once upon a time in Hollywood, which again, like, you know, it didn't totally work for me as a movie, but it, it created a certain feel and rhythm and pace in a world that um, I thought the editing really played into helping support and create. Um, so I appreciated that aspect of it.
0: All right. Well, from there, let's turn our attention to the visual effects category. First nominee on the list, Avengers Endgame. The team is Dan DeLue, Russell Earle, Matt Aiken, and Dan Suddick.
2: I mean, it's again, you know, look at the category of visual effects and what people might be voting for. I think on one level, just the pure number of visual effects per movie, like Avengers Endgame and Star Wars sort of stand out to me as like, you know, full to the brim with obvious visual effects that we all can sort of know and appreciate. You know, I mean, I, I didn't watch Avengers Endgame sort of looking at it and thinking about the visual effects category, but certainly it's important to how the story's told. And I thought it worked great. I mean, I, I found the effects appropriate. They supported the the movie. Obviously, they had a sort of unlimited budget to make both the huge, wide, massive battles work, and then also the... Um, smaller stuff, you know, where we you're working with superheroes and supporting the characters' work. So just overall, it was well done. And there's a lot there.
1: Yeah, I would say, uh, obviously, the category is bracketed by two very effects-heavy films, uh, Avengers and Star Wars, and in Avengers uh, effects are front and center. They're the, in some ways, the, the centerpiece of the film. We can argue that it's actually not about very much else, Whether that's, you know, the highest use of visual effects, I guess is uh, open to debate.
0: Well, we know that Scorsese has opinions about it, but I do think one of the advantages that Avengers Endgame has versus a lot of even the other Marvel movies getting up to this point is that I think it is a better movie and a better story and actually has more dramatic going on where the visual effects are effective in the story rather than watching a film where the visual effects become tedious, which I have felt on a lot of earlier Marvel movies and felt less so with this. And while it's not enough of a story to you know, put it into some of the other categories necessarily as uh, uh, you know, best picture being the most obvious, I don't think it's going to achieve that kind of level. But perhaps this is a place where, yes, the fact that they were able to do a good story and use the visual effects effectively, I, I think that it's got some, it's got some legs here.
3: Well, personally, I feel like, I mean, I love Endgame. I've loved the other Marvel movies, but I think it's also, you know, if, if you go back, so we've we've had a couple other Avengers movies nominated for Oscars. We had the first one in 2012, lost to Life of Pi. Uh, Infinity Wars nominated 2018, lost to First Man. So it's clear that the visual effects branch of the Academy sort of leans towards more realistic stuff, or at least you know, VFX that are, that are aiding and, and maybe more invisible as opposed to Avengers, which is like, you know, you're watching one big spectacle. I, I think, you know, again, we're, we're talking about a couple more categories we'll get into, but certainly between Avengers and Star Wars, there's some, there are some other projects that have a, a, more of a base in reality.
0: So let's get into the Irishman, and I'm gonna apologize in advance if I mess up any of these names. Pablo Hellman. Leandro Estebacarena, Nelson Sepulveda-Falzer, and Stefan Grobley. What do you guys think of The Irishman?
3: Well, obviously, I mean, the, the, the biggest, the effect in the movie is the de-aging. That's been quite the topic. I, I, I think You know, we're talking about Pablo Hellman's kind of the guy who's like running the show at ILM these days for all intents and purposes, and he's a very well-respected VFX producer. But at the same time, I think I mentioned it in our last podcast, there's there's a video that has subsequently come online with a guy saying, I have de-aged the Irishman using over-the-counter face replacement software. When I saw it in split screen, I thought that what this guy had done in his bedroom was better than what ILM had done on the film. So I, I'm not sure if that will hurt it with Academy voters, but um, you know, it's hard to say what else in the movie was a bigger effect than that.
1: Interesting. I, if to my taste, again, as a, as a non-VFX pers- person viewer, um, I looked at this and I said, What's the Irishman? Oh, that's what it's doing there. And it was that kind of response where I completely forgot that I was looking at effects that for me uh, indicates that the effect has been successful. I have, of course, no opinion on how difficult it was, but you know, I, I just, uh, at least as an ideal, uh, that kind of sort of approaches more what I would hope visual effects would do for a story.
2: I was not a big fan of this being included in this category. I didn't feel like the de-aging worked very well. It, It did jump out at me from a visual effects point of view. I could, I could really feel like I could see it happening. And again, it's a little hard to separate that from just the choice of like, okay, we're gonna do this with Robert De Niro, but it just didn't work. And I, I just didn't feel like it really belonged in this category, frankly. I like the movie for other reasons, obviously. I'd love the editing as I pointed out, but VFX not getting my vote.
3: I, I feel like maybe part of the reason it got a nomination is because of the technical innovation, which is to say that we've all seen these sort of behind the scenes of like Avatar where they have the big face rig but uh, you know this this technology has now evolved that the actors on set didn't have to wear those or do you know the dots on the face and things like that. So I almost feel like part of this nomination is the VFX uh, branch saying like we can appreciate how you've pushed our, our our medium forward.
1: For most of the categories, I think you submit the film, but for visual effects and and certain others, you're you're kind of submitting like. Um, uh, a, a portfolio that is of of, of sequences or, or for for to the nominators is is that true to your knowledge?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm also not in the in the visual effects branch, but generally, what they're looking at, what what would be sent to them would be a finished shot or sequence, and then they would sort of pull it out. Like as you're watching, you'd see layers lifted off of it and what was done to it, and then it would sort of snap back into the final that you're. So if it's like you know, Avengers, and that's that final battle sequence. They pull all those layers, separate layers out and then and then show you like, here's where we put the trees, and here's the ground, and then here's the actors, and here's DigiDoubles, and then sort of snap it all back together.
1: So the nominators have a sense of what went into kind of creating the, the final product then?
0: I feel like this is a category where the Irishman would benefit from that sort of submission because given specific scenes and showing the visual effects magic that de-aged folks, and if they were properly selected, it would be incredible. Again, I think the technology is pretty amazing. But on the film overall, I think there's an area where the efforts actually do not help the film. In fact, to Chris, your point earlier about the decision about having De Niro himself play at all those different ages, a lot of that you can't cover up. And so the effort to cover it up in some ways is worse than the actually just doing it. And so I think, it, I think when people see the entire film, I think it hurts its uh, contention in this category.
3: Well, there's also sort of the cognitive dissonance that we all have because we know what these people actually look like now. We know they're 79 or whatever, you know, you know 79. So when you're looking at it, your brain is already going, that's not what he looks like. And so it pulls you out. You know, you have to like take yourself away from the VFX and just watch the movie.
1: I've also heard criticism, again, this isn't my take per personally, that some people feel like there's, there's sort of a, a Botox effect, that the de-aging, you know, going from older to young, really mutes the expressiveness of some of the faces. Um, that's one thing I've heard.
3: I, I just want to add one thing too, which is that for me, the best de-aging that I've seen yet was the opening of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when they de-aged Kurt Russell. I mean, it, I thought it was extraordinary. I, I, it blew my mind. I was like, did they, did they cut him out of a, an 80s movie and like put him in these <laughs> like I don't get what they're doing. It's, it's phenomenal. So coming from that and then a couple of years later to see The Irishman, I was like, yeah, I don't know. if I, I don't think it's working. And then oddly, I think it works better on Pesci than it does on De Niro, for example. I think, I, I think it works better on Pacino than it does on De Niro for whatever reason.
0: Well, I think this is an area where we're going to see more and more of this going forward in different aspects. So we'll, we'll see what, what comes of it. Our next film, The Lion King, with the team of Robert Legato, Adam Valdez, Andrew R. Jones, and Elliot Newman. I don't think any of us have seen this film. <laughs> so uh, even those of you with kids, you didn't go back to see The Lion King live action or digital action, if you will, in the theater?
1: the only kid of mine who was interested hadn't even seen the animated version so we watched that during which I fell asleep and then she didn't go see the live action one so
2: my family decided it was just one remake too many you know, we'd seen, we, there's you know we, we all love the animated movie but we'd seen um the jungle book live action and you know frankly didn't feel like it was adding that much to the classic animated movie. In fact, sort of took it away a little bit sometimes because it was too scary and too fraught with seeming reality. Um, But we, you know, I assume it's the same technology. We really enjoyed the way in which the animals were given expression and brought to life. I'm assuming they perfected it and it's even better here. So there is that aspect of it. And at some point maybe we'll watch it, but it wasn't a must see right now sort of movie. Yeah,
3: I also didn't see it. I think it sort of builds on what uh, Favreau was able to do with Jungle Book. But at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of people sort of saying, like, how is it not an animated film? We're seeing photo real animals, but literally every shot was created, save for one in the entire movie. So how is it just, you know, visual effects and not in an animated category?
0: I think that's a good point. No one will confuse our next film with being in an animated category. And that's 1917. And the team was Guillaume Rechiron. Greg Butler, and Dominic Tui.
3: Yeah, so this, is, this movie obviously is, is, is a case where I, I think visual effects is used more to remove things that they didn't want in a shot or to smooth those invi- invisible cuts um, of which there, there are many in the film. I think in terms of the Academy, looking back on, on what they award, this is the type of thing that they do give awards to because they like that sort of when they can't tell what the effect is. So, and, and uh, you know, there were, I, I probably, I can't recall a visual effect shot that stood out to me in the film. So that's pretty darn good.
2: This one would also probably get my vote if I were voting in this, in this category at the Academy. Um, I just thought the, the way in which it was seamless, um, but so obviously needing visual effects to tell the story and how on earth they, you know, managed to get them all to work, uh, when they're doing these sort of single takes all the time. I just I thought it was really impressive. I mean, the, one of the sequences really stood out when the airplane there's an airplane that crashes into a barn where our two main characters are and, um, you know, explodes in flame. And that obviously needed tons of special effects in order to have the actors working with, uh, you know, this threat of an airplane coming right at them. And it just, it felt real. It felt like you were there and just beautifully done. I mean, very photo real and, really impressive. So I think, I think it has the, the beauty of being photo real, helping tell the story and like being visually impressive all at the same time. So two thumbs up for me on this one.
1: And again, I have not seen it, but, and, and I, even as a, you know, passionate spoiler resister, I of course have heard about the, the one takeness of the film, which everybody who talks about it seems to know is a fabrication but also in the same breath they talk about how convincing and kind of magical that uh that effect is so you know i i'm looking very much forward to to seeing it
2: and also kudos to the vfx team for working on set with the actor i mean some of this obviously is to the actor but some of this has to go to the vfx team in terms of how they they worked with him you know, I'm trying to think about uh, directing an actor has to do a lot of single takes with a lot of visual effects. I mean, whatever they did, and I, haven't, I haven't researched this yet, but whatever they did to support him and make it feel realistic to him and not get in the way of him hitting his marks and sort of delivering his performance, they really, they did it in a way that helped him um, somehow. And I, I can't wait to find out a bit more, but again, that was impressive that they were supporting uh, an actor's performance and adding these layers of visual effects to create the danger of the war, but did it in a way that didn't interfere with his performance.
3: I think on the last episode, uh, one of Skid's guests brought up that there I'm not giving anything away, Joshua, there are rats in in a lot of sequences in No Man's Land and things like that. And she was saying like, do you think the rats were digital? And I was going, well, I mean, I kind of, yeah, maybe they were, but you can't really tell. And I guess that just speaks to the level of, of the quality of work.
0: I think 1917 might be a a favorite in this category. We'll see how it shakes out. Our last film does bring us back around to the large visual effects spectacle that's Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. The team is Roger Gayette, Neil Scanlon, Patrick Tubak, and Dominic Tui. Dominic's uh, got a couple of options to take home the award this year, but uh, in general, Star Wars, what do you think of the effects in that?
2: They really got making lightsabers down at this point.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, so you go back to the original to 1977 when they were, ILM was pioneering this stuff. They won the Oscar in 77. They won again in in 1980 for, for Empire Strikes Back. But, but then, you know, into the 90s when he, was, when he was really sort of, you know, Lucas was revolutionizing the effects, they weren't really winning. It was going to The Matrix, it was going to the Lord of the Rings series, things like that. Um, I, I think it's pretty cool that with the new trilogy they've come back into the category. I think what's probably most fascinating to me about the new film is what's visual effects and what is practical puppeteering because from what I've heard, a lot of the characters that even in the last film might've been visual effects are now puppets. And, and where that line is, I'm not sure. I haven't looked at a lot of the, the materials, but I think that's pretty fascinating. I don't think, again, as we've sort of gone through these, I don't think Star Wars is going to win this category, but I think it's pretty cool that 40 years later, whatever it is, they're, they're still in the game for, for being as good as they are.
1: I'm glad that Sean brought up the issue of puppetry, because for me... For this film, everything was a puppet. (laughs) I'm not a huge fan of this movie, and I think the the visual of there were some very arresting visual images. But again, you know, that's just about for me all the movie had going for it.
2: Certainly, in terms of like just the scale, the effects. I mean, it's you know it's a space opera, so they're huge. Um, and uh, again just obviously tons of resources behind it incredibly well done so you know I I enjoyed the visual effects I thought you know they were effective and appropriate to the film Um, I think Sean's point is very well taken it's like you know if I'm looking at these movies and trying to say like okay what is actually breaking new ground in the category here probably not the movie that I would vote for just because it's you know, it feels like there's incremental improvements on what's gone in previous Star Wars movies, but you're almost a victim of the fact that they do this every couple of years, or have done this every couple of years recently. They can make these big space operas.
0: Well, what about films that didn't make this list? Does anybody recall anything else from the year that uh, is not here?
2: No, I mean, I, I you know, I know that Sean worked on this, but I mean, Jojo Rabbit's visual effects. I thought you know were actually again an interesting add-on to the story. So that that one stood out as as helping create the world the filmmaker wanted.
0: I'm curious to what degree that visual effects played a role in say John Wick Parabellum, which Mm -hmm. I thought was an excellent film, but early in the year and obviously a sequel. um, But to what, and is it just a failure of marketing on their part or can a film like that not break into Oscar consideration just because of its subject matter?
3: I mean, I feel like to some extent it's, it's whoever the, the representation is of these people not sort of putting their work forward. If you look at Parabellum, the sequence with the samurai swords and when they're like breaking the glass to grab these weapons out of a cabinet, everything that they're grabbing in that sequence is not there. They're grabbing, they're grabbing air and pretending to wield it at each other. It's hugely impressive. The, the motorcycle sequence on the bridge. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of VFX in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably would have subbed that in instead of The Lion King, not to take away from their work. But again, I, I almost prefer when VFX is not the story, but, but an aid to the story and sort of underneath things, and you're not quite aware of what, what you're looking at.
2: I do think there's a genre bias in the Academy, or at least I project there being one into the Academy, where they do... Prefer more weighty, serious subject. Um, you know, certain dark comedies have done well over the years, but this this sort of like you know historic, epic feeling movie, you know, is what I imagine the Academy liking. And I just think that the John Wick series has a genre issue with the Academy that they would just look at it and say, "Oh, it's it's kind of it's a genre movie, so we're not going to nominate it." And I think yeah. that could bleed over into even into an individual individual category sometimes.
3: Definitely, I would agree with that.
0: All right, guys. Well, we'll see which way the Academy goes. Won't have long to wait. Thanks for joining today's guys. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. It's great. Thanks, Skid. Thanks for having us, Skid. Listeners, I welcome your feedback. You can email skid, S-K-I-D, at belowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-C. If you visit us on iTunes, please leave a rating and a comment. It really helps us reach new listeners. And if you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at podcast, below the Line. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at PodBotBotBot. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbull.com. Listeners, thanks for following us. We're still working through the Oscar nominees, and the next episode will be available very soon.